You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, this morning, uh, we're deciding to island hop from our previous island of last week called Calvinist Island, which looked like an island from the movie Avatar, uh, to its sister island, which will be up on the screen here, uh, which is taken straight out of Acadia National Park this week. Um, Like our last island, this one seems very nice, and it's very inviting. But when you get to this island, the greeting is a little different. When you arrived on Calvinist Island, you were greeted with a sign that said you were destined You were always destined to be here. This week, this island's greeting says, we're glad you decided to be here. It says, welcome to the island of human responsibility. And on this island, you get there and you realize there are choices everywhere. It's like a freestyle cruise. Everywhere you go, you have decisions to make. Every food line is a buffet where you can have a pick of anything, but there are consequences to the decisions you make. And as you journey up into the heart of the island, you encourage some, yeah, encounter some pathways and trails, and some of these trails even have warning signs that tell you that your decisions could have consequences, like this one right here. Now, you may not be able to read this, but if you see, it says uh, basically that people have died from this. Uh, so uh, it has resulted in death. So it gives you a, a pretty stark warning that maybe this is not the trail for you, but you know you're living a little bit on the edge, and you live a little of interest, so you decide to hike a bit anyways, and you can see uh, what this hike looks like on the next screen. Yeah, that is, that is Abby, uh, hiking on the edge of a mountain um, right there in the beautiful island. And as you hike up this very dangerous, albeit a cool trail, you get to experience the beauty and the glory of this island. Now, we, we use this metaphor again uh, of an island here to try to reconcile in our minds here. How can we harmonize in a, in a metaphorical way what Romans 9 was saying to us last week and what the end of Romans 9 into Romans 10 will say this week for us? Uh, how do we reconcile uh, these two islands, the w- one that, that seems to emphasize God's sovereignty and salvation and one that seems to emphasize our human responsibility in salvation? Well, like we said last week, the answer is we don't. We don't have to try to reconcile them because they're not enemies. We don't have to try to reconcile them because they're not at odds with one another. As we quoted last week, the the great uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon, he says, you don't try to reconcile friends. And these concepts are friends. And what we see today is the Bible speaks very uh, clear to us that both human responsibility and God's sovereignty work together for our salvation. That they're two sides of the same coin. Last week, we were reminded of the coin of Romans 9, which emphasized and focused on God's sovereignty and election for our salvation. And this week, what we're going to see is that Paul is going to emphasize the other side of the coin, our role in it, how we respond, why belief matters. And so our main idea today may seem like it contradicts last week's main idea, but they don't contradict each other at all. Uh, Last week's main idea was that salvation truly belongs to the Lord, which is absolutely true. And this week's main idea comes straight from the text, that at the same time, everyone And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, calling on the name of the Lord is not at odds with being called by God. 
They are two sides of the same coin. And as we said last week, Scripture indicates that God's sovereignty and our salvation and our human responsibility to respond to that kind of operates as a paradox. A, A paradox that may appear like it's contradicting itself, but in reality it's not. And the example we used last week was how uh, when Albert Einstein demonstrated that, that light sometimes can appear to behave like a wave and at other times it appears to behave like a particle. And, and although it may be hard for us to fully grasp this, the truth is that both of them behave in that way, in, in the way uh, uh, the nature works in this universe, right? They don't contradict one another. And, and last week we essentially looked at the particle. We, we essentially looked at how God, through election, how God's sovereignty uh, works in salvation. And this week we're looking at the wave. Well, what does it mean for us? How do we respond to this message? The point is today in Romans 10, we're going to see is that God has given us a sincere invitation to receive his salvation. And if we believe in him, then we know God was in it. We know that he was sovereignly working in it. Salvation truly does belong to the Lord and that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will experience that salvation. That is the truth that holds these two chapters together. And so we're going to look in our outline today, two simple points from this text. Number one, the necessity of belief, why believing in what we confess matters. And then number two, the necessity of helping others believe, why it's not only our responsibility as humans to, to respond to God's calling of salvation, but also our responsibility to then go and to share it with others. And so we're going to dive straight into the text at the end of Romans 9, starting in verse 30. Everything that Paul has just said He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles, the Greeks, who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is a a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why, Paul says? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, let's stop right there for a moment. Up until this point in Romans, we've been uh, experiencing all the, the glories and the blessings of the Christian faith. All the major themes are packed into Romans, starting from the very beginning of our need uh, for salvation, uh, our, our sinful nature, both Jews and Greeks alike, Gentiles and, and, and Jews alike. He says we're all in need of salvation. No one is righteous. We, we all need salvation, and, and we have the opportunity to receive that salvation by faith in what Christ has done. And we experience our faith in what Jesus has done. We are then justified. And we talked about this term early in the book of Romans, which Paul is bringing back up. This idea that, that we are made right with God because of what Christ has done for us. And because of that, we're then united with Jesus. And when we're united with Jesus, we experience all those beautiful promises of Romans chapter 8. That when we're united to Jesus, there is no condemnation for us anymore. When we're united to Jesus, he transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we're united to Jesus, we experience this beautiful culminating promise that nothing can separate us from the unfathomable, unshakable love of God. That we are sealed by his spirit, we have eternal life in him. And then we get to Romans 9, and then he talks about how God, through his sovereignty, has his divine purposes in salvation. But also that those who, who do not believe, speaking of Israel here, that the, the, uh, the emphasis has been on God's sovereign plan. That their unbelief was according to his plan. That's what the beginning of Romans 9 says. But here it seems to shift. That Paul is saying, no, no, they're, they're responsible for their unbelief. Uh, they're responsible for how they have not believed in faith in the gospel message. So again, how do we reconcile these things? Well, the Bible always reminds us, it never uh, pulls these things apart. 
It never says that something happens totally according to God's plan, therefore humans are not responsible for the way they respond. Nor does it say the flip side. Because of the way uh, humans act or respond, it does not go according to God's plan. These truths are always held together. And here Paul is is describing this for us. He's saying that Israel's unbelief was, was their responsibility. They chose not to believe. And in fact, the irony here, he says, is who did believe? He says it was the Greeks, the Gentiles. Those who actually didn't have the law. Uh, the irony is that those who were actually apart from a righteousness, from, as he says here, uh, those who were living apart from that, they were actually the ones who believed in the gospel. The ones who didn't have the law of God, that, the, the law that described the character of God, the law that described what his requirements were, the law that described our need for a savior. And why did they believe? Because they believed in faith. But why did the Jews have a hard time believing here? He says, because they didn't pursue it by faith, but they pursued it by works. See, what this passage reminds us, the danger of responding to the gospel as a religious person, as a self-righteous person, right? Uh, Because when we're self-righteous, when we lead with religion, what we're actually leading with is what we can do to earn God's favor, in doing so, we, we minimize our sin and our need for a Savior because we believe that if we try hard enough, eventually God will owe us something. If we obey long enough, eventually God will owe us something. It's just too easy to believe in the work of another for salvation, right? And so what happens? He says, well, they have stumbled over a stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul has articulated for us throughout the book of Romans that Jesus is our righteousness. And that when we believe in him, he puts us right with God, meaning that he is the foundation stone, he is the cornerstone who our whole lives are built upon. We have a sure footing in life because of Jesus. But he says the person who pursues a righteousness on their own, for them, Jesus is not their sure foundation. He is an inconvenience. He is an obstacle. He is even an offense. Why? Because the necessity of belief in Jesus requires us to lay down any idea of self-righteousness any idea that we can achieve salvation on our own and simply accept his. The reason it's a stumbling block is because the necessity of belief in Jesus means that we humble ourselves before we could ever be raised up. And if we're looking to our own works, we will stumble and fall when confronted with Christ. But but notice how Paul responds to his brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith. Notice how he responds to them who are stumbling over Christ. He doesn't just give him abstract theology here. He's emotionally invested because he truly desires that they would believe in Jesus and be saved. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire in prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. So what is Paul's uh, response to those who are stumbling over Christ? He prays. Why does he pray? Because our prayer life really reveals what truly lies in our hearts. Does it not? And you might say, well, Paul, why, why would you pray if it's all about God's choosing? Why would you pray if it's, if, it's, if, if it's his plan, his sovereign plan? Why, why would you even pray for their salvation? 
what difference will your prayers make? You see, Paul understands how to hold this paradox in tension. He understands God's sovereignty in bringing people to salvation, that salvation belongs to the Lord, but that doesn't keep him from praying. In fact, that is what motivates him to pray. It is the motivator to see that his prayers matter. It is the motivator to see that God actually wants to use his prayers as a means to bring people to the necessity of belief in Jesus. And so he doesn't cease praying for those who have stumbled over Christ. No, no, no. Knowing that God is sovereign is actually motivating him and, and empowering him to pray for their hearts to be open to the gospel. You see, what pains Paul here is that the Jews were very zealous, meaning they had a, a great fervor for obedience to God. They desired it. Uh, they were very zealous towards obedience to God. But the problem, Paul says here, is that their zeal was not based in knowledge. See, what Paul's saying there is the problem is that their zeal, although it was good, they wanted to pursue obedience, they were not pursuing it with accurate knowledge about who God was, or who God is and what he has done. See, the truth here for us to understand is that our, our zeal for God, our desire to obey God, is only valuable if it's attached to a right belief about God. Those things have to come together. And, and what that means is that it, that flies in the face of one of the common sayings of our day, which is simply this, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you just follow your heart. Well, the Jews here were very sincere and very zealous, but their beliefs were mistaken. You know, it's like if a, if a, a lady who's your neighbor, she has a very deep desire in, in, in zeal and sincerity to bring you flowers to your house, not knowing that you're deathly allergic to them, right? She has the zeal, but she doesn't have the knowledge she doesn't understand, and so her zeal actually has dire consequences. And the same is true for the self-righteous, for the religious. You can have a great zeal to obedience to God and to try to earn your favor with God, but without knowledge about who God is and your need for him, it can end in dire consequences for you. And so he says the Jews were sincere in their belief, but they were ignorant. They were ignorant not because they didn't have knowledge available to them. They were ignorant because they did not submit willingly to God's plan for salvation. When Christ came, it says that he came to end the law for righteousness. That means he, he didn't came to abolish all the law and, and the goodness of it. What he came to do is to end it as a way to be made right with God. It is now through Christ that we're made right with God. And so he puts an end to all of our, 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 our self-improvement plans. He, he puts an end to all of our self-salvation projects. And he tells Israel here that they should intuitively know better. Why? Because verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What is he saying here? He says they should know better. Knowledge has been given to them because Christ has come. But more so than just as Christ has come to reveal exactly what they need to believe in for righteousness sake, he also says that it was, it was said in the scriptures long before Christ came. In essence, what Paul's doing here is he's making a common case with Moses, who he's quoting here from Deuteronomy. He's essentially saying here that he, he's not calling his fellow Israelites to believe in something new. He's actually telling them to go back to what's truest about their roots. That righteousness, that being justified, has always come by faith. That salvation has always been the, the work of the Lord on our behalf. 
You see, if we try to convince ourselves that we can do enough to be accepted by God, then we, like Israel, have a hard time submitting to what Christ has done for us. But, and, and that is the heartbeat of every religion in this world. Do enough to be accepted by God when the motivation for the Christian is to do because we've already been accepted by God. The motivation to be zealous, the motivation to obey comes from a heart of gratitude for what Christ has already done for us. What, what he's saying here, and he's quoting Moses to prove it, is what faith knows is that we, we, don't, we don't have a righteousness based in our works. Yes, to live uh, by the commandments of, of God would bring life, but that also means that when we don't live by the commandments, which all of us fall into that, that means that brings death. And what he's saying through Moses here is that something more than law-keeping was required. And it wasn't a quest to go find it. Notice he says you don't have to scale up to heaven to reach God, nor do you have to go to the depths to, to, to deal with your own sin. No, it requires something much deeper than what you can accomplish. It requires what Christ has already done for you. And so what verse 8, what does he say? But, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, Moses knew that this word was near you. And this word is a word of faith that we confess with our mouth. Because when we confess with our mouth, it reveals what we believe deep in our hearts. He said, this word is near you. How does this word of faith save you? Well, he gives us two things that have to happen for the word to save, for, for the necessity of belief in the Christian faith. Here are the two things. Number one, knowledge. That the word of faith must be known. Notice what he says here. You have to confess something and you have to believe something. Well, in order to do that, you have to know something. What does he say? We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, we have to know who Jesus is. And we believe in our heart what? That he was raised from the dead. In other words, we have to know what his works were, what he did for us. To say that Jesus is Lord is to, to know that he is God. And more so than just the fact that he is God, to say that he is Lord means that he has the supreme authority over your life and over this world. And not only to have that knowledge, but then to back that knowledge up with what he has done for you, his work, that God raised him from the dead, which points to his life, his perfect life, and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, and his resurrection from the dead so that you can have eternal life. These truths have to be held out in front of us in order for us to have the right belief, the necessity of belief. We can't just believe in believing. We can't just believe in something abstract in order to be saved. We have to have knowledge of what Christ has done and who he is. But then that word about Jesus' identity and work must be believed. And how is it believed? How is it received? It's not received by cleaning yourself up and having a perfect heart. It's not received by some mystical or mystical words you say. What he's saying here, he's actually using kind of a, a parallelism here. When he's saying confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart, when he's saying justified and salvation, he's actually saying the same thing. All that is indicating one act that happens in the life of a believer. The necessity of belief, putting your faith in Jesus. That when we know what he has done and we believe in our hearts and we confess it with our lips, it means that we transfer all of our hope into the hands of Jesus out of our control, into his fully. Now what this is touching on is a very central characteristic of every human being. 
a central characteristic of every human heart, and that is belief, acts of spiritual faith. It's not just the Christian who lives by this. We all do. It's, it's who we are. It's ingrained in our nature, which is why people say different, uh, different things that are pretty common in our society. Things like, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe about God. All that matters is you're a good person. Or a statement like, I don't really have a particular belief about God or a particular view about God. I'm just open-minded. But these types of statements are actually riddled with theological and spiritual commitments based on knowledge that have consequences. In other words, we can't just be open and uncommitted about God. Every single human heart has a belief that we are living out of and exposing. And to say that it doesn't really matter what we believe is like saying it doesn't matter what we eat, even if it could kill us, right? It doesn't make any sense, does it? If you know, if you have knowledge that there is something that you could eat that would kill you, you wouldn't just say, well, let me just be open to this, right? Let me just open to consuming this and then find out later it's poison and that you die. You're very sincere, you're very open-minded, but you're dead now. There's consequences there. And the same is true to anyone who might say, well, it doesn't really matter what I, I believe. That is a theological position about the nature of God. And if there is a God and you believe that, then what you're saying is he's not going to mind that I leave, my, my life is lived contradicting to who he is and what he has done. All of us, every human heart, has a particular belief about God, and we are betting our eternal destiny that we're right. And if we're wrong, the consequences could be dire. The necessity of belief here, that every single human being, we will put our roots down into something. We will believe in something. We will confess something with our lips that we truly believe deep down in our hearts. And if it's not the Lord of the Bible, Jesus Christ, if it's not him that we trust, then we will look to something else to find that purpose and that satisfaction and that meaning. And we will pursue it with that same zealousness that we would pursue faith in Jesus. But Paul says what our hearts intuitively know, that there is a faith that can save us. And it's not just a general belief about God. It's not just about being religious. It's not being open-minded or a good person. It's not just even believing that Christ lived or in his teachings. It is a full dependency and trust in his death and his resurrection and who he said he was. It is a full reliance on what he has done for you as the only means to be made right with God. And this is what Paul says was so beautiful about this passage, that anyone can do this. That it's available for everyone no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, no matter how much life you've lived or not lived. It is available to you. And the second half of that promise is that you will never regret putting your trust in him. He says that everyone who believes in him are lavished with his riches of salvation. When you call upon him, all the blessings of Roman, all the blessings of knowing Christ, they, they are yours. And you will not be put to shame. Now, as we continue to approach the center of this island, and we find that it is our responsibility to believe in what Christ has done, to, to receive the beauty and the glory of what he has done for us, we also see another responsibility of ours as Christians. And we confess with our mouths, we believe in our hearts, we are also called to help others believe as well. There's a necessity in the Christian life of helping others believe that Paul is talking about here. Look at verse 14. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in who, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
There's three words uh, I, I want to leave us with here um, that help us understand our responsibility, the necessity of the Christian life to help others believe, and that is that we have a message, we have a mission, and we have motivation. Let's look at the message. Every single one of us has a message as Christians. He tells us here, how will they hear? How will they know unless someone is preaching to them? In other words, what, what Paul is saying here is that saving faith does not happen mystically. It doesn't happen just through good deeds. It doesn't just happen through osmosis, right? The message of the Bible needs to be really heard and really understood. Every single believer has heard and understood this, and now Paul is saying that it is our opportunity to then go out and public communicate that and urge and persuade others to believe it as well. Now, there's a problem with this, that a lot of people in our society think this is wrong, right? One of the biggest critiques that Christianity gets often is not that you can believe in Jesus, that's perfectly fine, but just don't tell other people to believe in him. You can believe in him all you want to, but don't tell other people that they should also believe in him as well. But there's a problem with that problem. And that is what Jesus sends us to communicate, which is the gospel. Now, where gospel here is translated as good news. What does gospel mean? Well, in, in the time of the Greeks, gospel was just an announcement. But it's an announcement of a major historical change that affects everybody. And probably the most common example, one of the most famous examples of a gospel going forth in history was in 40, uh, 490 uh, B.C. This is the Battle of Marathon where the Persians were invading Greece, and the Athenian army went out to, to, to battle them in the plains of Marathon, and, and the Persians were the big army. They, they were the big guys, right? Uh, they, they were the ones who, who had all, 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 the, uh, all the, the, the force behind them, and so the people thought they were going to lose. The Athenians thought they were definitely going to lose, right? But something miraculously happens. To everyone's surprise, the Athenians won. And as soon as they won, they realized something. We need someone to go communicate the gospel, because people back in Athens are probably losing their minds, thinking they're going to lose their homes. They're looting, they're trampling each other on the streets, they're getting the heck out of Dodge because they know the Persians are coming. So we need to send someone to communicate the good news that this historical life-changing event has happened. And so what do they do? They send a single runner back, and he ran all the way from Marathon to Athens. And how long did he run? You got it. About the distance of a modern-day marathon. It's amazing where we get these concepts from, right? He ran into the city, and the story goes that as he runs into the city, he, he only can do one thing. He cries out, rejoice, we've triumphed, and then he fell dead from running. <laughs> the dude should have gone to run club, right? He probably would have been alive. <laughs> That's why you train for your marathons. Do you understand what Paul's saying here? When he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, do you understand what he's claiming here? He's saying that the message of Christ is not just advice to live by. It is not just how we can live or how we can pray. It is a historic, life-changing, monumentous event that has changed the entire situation of the world and everyone has to respond to it. So when a person says, you can believe in Jesus, but just don't try to convert anybody, what they're saying is, okay to believe in Jesus, just don't tell people the truth. When they say it's okay to believe in Jesus, just don't tell anybody about it. what they're really saying is he cannot be the unique God who is broken into human history that has changed everything. Because if he has, then we should go running into the streets, rejoice, he has triumphed, even if we fall dead doing it. This is the good news. And to not to take the good news to others would be the most unloving thing possible. It's like finding a cure for cancer and hoarding it to yourself. Say that I'll protect my family, but I'm not going to let anyone else know about the cure. That would be a very wicked thing to do. 
unfathomable, uh, actually, to do. But here, this is what it's like to know Jesus and to not preach his message. But he says we also have a mission. And our mission is that we are called to be sent. And notice he says that those who go and, and preach the good news, those beautiful feet, he doesn't say they're just the leaders. He doesn't just say they're just the clergy. No, 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 we're all on mission together. Everybody who has, who has been brought in by the love of Christ is then to be sent out with the love of Christ. Everyone who has received the blessings of salvation is now to be a blessing to the world. All of us have now been called to come in close with intimacy with Christ through salvation are now being sent out to help meet the needs of this world, to be a healing agent of his grace, to help reweave the fabrics of this world that are fading and are ripped because of sin, to go out because we have been brought in. Which means that every single one of us, your experiences, your joys, your sorrows, who you are, your giftings, all that mixed together means that God has shaped you and formed you to be a hand to hold someone else's hand in this life. He has shaped and formed you to be someone who can help meet the needs of someone else who needs Jesus. He has put certain people out there for you to be an agent of his healing grace in their lives. And this is so utterly different than what most people will believe that you are just a biological accident that has no rhyme or reason or cosmic purpose in this life. You absolutely have purpose. You are not random. God has chosen you, he has called you, and now he has sent you out in this world to be on mission with him. And finally, we have a motivation. As we come to the Lord's Supper, we're gonna end here. The beautiful feet that are sent sometimes are not always recognized as beautiful. And that's what Paul is actually saying at the end here. I'm just going to, you know, summarize, paraphrase the end of Romans chapter 10, which the Israelites themselves rejected this beautiful message. They didn't recognize it. And Paul assumes, as one would, that they would have rebuttals, that they would have excuses. So he addresses these one after another. He says, well, perhaps they didn't hear. Paul says, no, the Old Testament is pretty clear, they heard. Well, perhaps they didn't understand what they heard. Paul says, no, again, quoting from the book of Isaiah, no, they heard, they heard, they understood. And then verse 21, why didn't they believe? He says, well, look, all day long, God has been holding out his hands, but they were disobedient. Now, look, we can come to this passage and we can see the same questions in our own minds. Well, what about those who don't hear? What about those who don't understand? These are heavy questions. These are hard questions. But we have to trust it's the same is true for them as it is in verse 21. God has been holding out his hand. Our trust is placed in the wisdom of a good and merciful God. And it may seem, seem like that's just a cop-out to the answer, but that's not, because our motivation, our disposition when we come to this passage is one of humility. It's reminding us that we don't put, uh, we're not putting the creator in a place where he is subject to our finite and fallen notions of what is fair. But instead, we trust in his word. We trust in his heart, in his character revealed in his word that his ways are higher than ours and he needs no counselor because he is good and he does good. And so the, the motivation that we have, the humility we have to go out in mission is to realize that Jesus was on mission for us. The motivation for us to be sent out is that Jesus was sent out in every way for us. You see, we might be sent out to, to get a little uncomfortable at times or, or to lack a little security in life at times, but Jesus was sent out in every way. He was sent out from heaven for us. 
He was sent out from the Father's love for us. He was sent out of life itself on the cross for us. Jesus' mission was that he gave up everything for us. And when you see that he loved you in that way, when you see that that was his mission for you, when you see that you were the object of his mission, when you see that he did all that to rescue you, then that is the motivation to be willing to go out and rescue others. When you realize just how much he has loved you and what he was willing to go through, how he was sent on a mission for you, then that is what we need as motivation to then be on mission. It's not that we want to be on mission because we feel the need to be needed. It's not that we go on motivation to be on mission because we have the truth and we like to prove people wrong. No, we go out on mission because we know that we are loved by Jesus. And because of that, that allows us to get out a little bit of our security, get out a little bit of our comfort, and to know that we can now be a blessing to others because of what Christ has done for us, and that we can know God more fully when we are out on mission because of how Jesus was on mission for us. So today, as we come to the Lord's Supper, the calling for you today, if perhaps you've heard this message today for the very first time, or it's hitting your, your ears and your heart differently, is to put away the excuses that have caused you to run from Jesus, to call upon his name today. Anyone and everyone can call upon his name to believe in the gospel, the good news, the life-changing historical event that Jesus died and was resurrected for you to call out and to trust in him and to enjoy the riches of salvation in Christ. And then church, to join him in his mission to seek and save the lost. For his character is, it says that his character is this, that he is patient. He is not desiring that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.